Welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman, health editor at The Mail on Sunday, and with me today is The Mail on Sunday's deputy health editor, Eve Simmons, and The Mail on Sunday's resident GP, Dr Ellie Cannon. Hello. Hello. Ellie, thanks very much for tuning in to talk to us. I thought it would be good to have you on board today. You haven't spoken since you kicked off our entire campaign to encourage every GP to start seeing patients face to face again. It was spurred by letters that you received. You did a small comment in your column back in, I think, November last year. It opened the floodgates. More than a thousand readers have now written into us talking about their struggles to see a GP. I think, first of all, something that we've talked about over these months is that you represent part of GP practices that have been seeing people face to face. That's right, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So in my practice, we were seeing people throughout COVID. I mean, throughout the first wave, um, the doors were shut. But when we needed to, we saw them with PPE, which was what we were sort of guided to by NHS England. And And then the doors opened at some point in the middle of 2020. And they've stayed open since. Now, we are not seeing everybody who wants an appointment. The majority of people, I have to say, are having telephone appointments. But people who need to be seen are seen, and certainly the doors are open. So people can come in and make those appointments and attend for smears and blood tests and baby checks and all of those type of things. And part of the recent NHS England guidance was to say that people should have face-to-face appointments should they so request. Do you feel that you're honouring that or able to? I feel that we are able to honour it in sort of realistic clinical circumstances The typical case, for example, being a baby with a fever or somebody with a rash or swelling, all of those type of things. The trouble with the NHS England guidance is that it gave everybody sort of this idea that they need to be seen face to face when in fact a lot of people don't. So if you actually are phoning up to request a repeat prescription or to talk about your cholesterol, you don't actually need to see the doctor. And so there have been quite a few patients who've requested a face-to-face appointment because they feel they need it when in fact, you know, they really don't. So it definitely caused a lot of confusion and sort of unnecessary discord, I think, between patients and GPs. Do people understand when you say to them, well, you don't really need to come in and see me to get your repeat prescription. I could just tell your pharmacist and they'll have it ready for you. Do people appreciate that or do people get aggy? No, there's a, there's, there is a whole group of people who actually really prefer the remote access, whether that is phoning, texting, e-consultations, People are working, people are busy. Um, You don't have to live near your GP surgery anymore. So for some people, if they're actually quite far away, they'd much rather a phone call. So a lot of people really, really like that remote access. And that has really been, well, game-changing for them, to be honest, to be able to access NHS GP services in that way. But there's still a group of people who, yes, do get aggravated, who do think there's a whole, I don't know, almost a conspiracy why we're not seeing people and they should be able to see us even for things they don't really need to see us for. 
Ellie, if someone is adamant, I mean, this is the letters that we have got in from many readers. If someone is adamant that they know they need to see their GP, even though you might think that what they're saying is is an unnecessary thing to see a GP for, do you allow them to see somebody face to face just because they're so desperate to? We do. We weigh it up um, in terms of sort of the clinical need and, you know, what we think might be going on with the patient. If somebody's adamant that they want to be seen, then we do try and offer to see them. And often um, it's the path of least resistance and it's easier. But I know that that's unusual for a GP surgery. I mean, for example, where I'm a patient myself, where I go to the GP, they are pretty much refusing to see all patients now wow. still. So you can't get an appointment with your own GP face to face? No, I can't get a face to face appointment with my own GP. And from my understanding locally from other healthcare workers, for example, the pharmacist, is that they and many of the doctors where I work, where I'm a patient, sorry, are still only working remotely and are not working in situ at all. Why? It's hard to say, really. It's really hard to say. I think that there was concern in the last few weeks about the Delta variant and was that putting people at risk, being able to work safely, buildings, you know, that aren't necessarily well ventilated and this type of thing. But there isn't really a reason now why clinically appropriate face-to-face appointments can't be face-to-face. Because everyone's been vaccinated. Well, healthcare professionals will have been vaccinated. Well, healthcare professionals are vaccinated and the rates at the moment are still low. And even if they're rising now, they've certainly been low for the last month or two. So there's certainly no reason now. There's definitely a workload issue. So because of the advent of the e-consultation when people can message their doctor online, the workload has really gone up. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be safely seeing face-to-face patients who need to be seen face-to-face, as I say, a child with a fever, for example. What is the answer? I mean, obviously, the NHS England guidance went down like a ton of bricks you know what would you have done differently well i think the trouble is that these as i say general practice isn't homogenous and yet a homogenous edict was given out and so that really sort of offends and upsets all the gps who are working really hard who are seeing patients face to face So that is a huge problem. Combined with that, as I say, you've got this issue with the e-consultation, which we were all told to do last year, which we did, and that's created a huge workload. So unfortunately, there needed to be some sort of hybrid model whereby the access improves, i.e. via e-consultation, the phone systems are improved, but not the general edict about face-to-face appointments, but instead that doors are open and when clinically appropriate, the doctors should be seeing patients face-to-face. But as I say, the trouble always with the NHS um, is when you have these top-down approaches, there's such variety locally. Um, So what works for one GP won't work for another GP Mm. around the corner. Um, And actually, perhaps it should all be handed over to local public health chiefs to see how many GP appointments are available locally and to work things out in a more equitable way. Ellie, I'm going to ask you something that I don't think I've ever asked you. Why did you become 
a GP? Oh, that's a really good question. So the reason I became a GP, so I was actually always going to be a paediatrician and I went to medical school to become a paediatrician because I love working with kids. And actually, paediatrics is very emotionally challenging and it's very upsetting. Not so much really for the physical um, the physical side of things, which is obviously devastating for children, but in fact, all of the sort of socioeconomic effects on children. And sadly, when I did paediatrics, I did see a lot of um, horrible things in child psychiatry and safeguarding. And so being a GP really gave me the option of seeing seeing a lot of kids, I suppose, in a more delicate way, if you like. But actually... It turns out that I really, really like people <laughs> and I'm incredibly nosy and that makes you a good GP. I think the thing that I've always enjoyed uh, with your writing is that you often think outside the box. I think 18 months or maybe it was even longer ago now, everything sort of blurs into <laughs> the last year. You wrote quite a controversial piece saying that every patient should be charged 50p to see their GP, a bit like a plastic bag tax, mm, in order to make mm. people value their GP service better. And, you know, the the big problem was that the problems in, in GP practices and primary care predate the pandemic, don't they? And, mm. you know, there was a too much demand, too few GPs. Um, mm. You were being asked all kinds of even before e-consult you were being bombarded often with questions that could be dealt with by you know by a pharmacist and you were always trying to encourage people to better arm themselves or empower themselves by knowing more about how to look after themselves that's always been your message i feel and you know your your 50p tax thing was was quite controversial <laughs> i mean you know i saw why you despaired that people would book an appointment and then not turn up and you know appointments were as rare as hen's teeth even then mm. um do you feel that something radical needs to change now in primary care do you feel like there needs to be a shift that we've reached a point you know where there's a whole new layer of burden now. What can really be done to solve these problems that have been festering and, and growing for so many years? I mean, I'm sorry to say that the problems that were there before the pandemic are still there and are much worse. And what I feel that is really noticeable now because we triage a lot of the phone calls that come in. We triage them a lot ourselves now as doctors. So we see much more what people are getting in touch with. Is we're, we're not good in the UK. And again, this is something I've always banged on about. We're just not good in the UK at either self-care or looking to our pharmacists. And so that means that GPs are burdened, and I'm sorry to use that word, but GPs are burdened with minor ailments and issues that really GPs don't need to be bothered with because you could go to a different healthcare professional and also combine that with the fact there are you know there is a deficit of GPs so we don't have enough and there has never been a way of safely separating the wheat from the chaff and safely giving Mr. A, an appointment for his chest pain over Mr. B, who has hay fever, apart from triage. And I think that's what we've tried to do now. But unfortunately, we've still got the issue of, you know, opening up to all of these things. And I would like to see a huge campaign 
to empower pharmacists. I know in a lot of GP surgeries now, pharmacists are working in GP surgeries. There's a lot of physicians associates now who, and also nurse practitioners. There just isn't the staff in GP surgeries to deal with everything the public expects us to deal with. So as an example, let's say, let's say on an average day in my practice before we close the triage list we might get sort of 150 phone messages that the doctors have to look at to decide who needs an appointment currently 10 of those would be about hay fever now unless you have really severe allergies all of those people should be in a pharmacy a good 20 or so at the moment will be about the covid vaccine So they might be about moving appointments or side effects or this or that. Well, again, all of that information is available online and that should all be dealt with, um, you know, really sort of by administrators. So there is too much coming into general practice that really we can't cope with and we can't cope with it because there aren't enough of us as well. You will know because you're writing about it that there are huge waiting lists in the hospitals at the moment. And when patients locally where I work phone the local hospital and say, why am I waiting so long? They're told to ask their GP to write them an urgent letter. So again, bounce back to the GP. Mm. So unfortunately, we are the catch-all for a lot of things that actually shouldn't be our problem. And that means that your Mr. A, who's still waiting with his chest pain, is waiting for a very long time because we're dealing with all of these other things and we have no way when we answer the phone if it's going to be somebody who's very needy or somebody who should be in the pharmacist. Ellie, would there be an argument for, say, within a GP practice, you would have specialists in certain areas? So they wouldn't be a gynaecologist, say, but they would be a gynaecological expert within the Mm. GP practice and then there would perhaps be one member of staff who would pull everything together. Would that work? Or like more pharmacists, more nurses. Nurse prescribers, specialist nurses. pharmacist prescribers. And, you you know, the GP would be the kind of the less usual person to see Mm. and that within, you know, that there would be a bigger army of pharmacists who were able to prescribe and to be able to deal Mm. with the hay fever queries. But from a GP... Because it sounds like maybe it's the people don't want to go to their pharmacist. Is it a trust issue? I mean, we know that people but they have don't a great deal of trust in doctors, or, don't yeah. they? And I don't know whether that holds true for pharmacists. But, you know, call the pharmacist prescriber something different. Mm. Call them a Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a move towards getting <laughs> pharmacists into into general practice. Does There's that been a big well? change in the last year or so. And people are keen to speak to them and they're really helpful and they're great. People generally don't see pharmacists on the high street as healthcare professionals. They they sort of see them as shop owners, unfortunately. So they they don't they're not really sort of sought in the public eye. They need a good PR um, team, don't they? Pharmacists professionals that they are, which is obviously a big shame. There were always something called gypsies, GPSI, GPs with special interests, and you could train as a GP to do extra work in dermatology or this or that and that that's always been the case and there are a lot of GPs around who specialize in different things um and you know in my practice one could say that I sort of do a lot of pediatrics and child safeguarding I have a colleague 
who is particularly good at dermatology, another colleague who specializes in diabetes. Mm. But the trouble with that is that, as I say, I mean, GPs do need to be generalists. And if you start doing specialist clinics in general practice, then it takes those doctors away from doing the more general things. If you have a question or a suggestion for Medical Minefield, ask us on Twitter using the hashtag Medical Minefield. Ellie, I want to ask if you'll stay on the line, if that's possible. We've got your colleague, Dr Mike Smith, just about Mm. to call in. Dr Smith wrote a piece for us last Sunday in which he revealed that his own mum hadn't been able to see her GP face-to-face and, you know, had a friend who had a terrible uh, experience in which his mum went without an appointment face-to-face for many, many months and then ultimately was diagnosed with late-stage lymphoma, I believe it was. A very sad story. Mike said... He felt that the entire discourse over this uh, was being coloured by a minority of GPs who were, every time the the face-to-face criticism came up, simply said how busy they were and and the the situation was a crisis and and refused to acknowledge the fact that patients were very, very unhappy. Anyway, Ellie, if you hang on the line now, we've got your colleague uh, in Nebworth, Dr Mike Smith on the line. Mike, thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us. I'll kick off by saying, how's the reaction been to the to the piece that you did? I know you were slightly nervous about sticking your head above the parapet. You know, you said some quite critical things in your article. You know, has there been a, a, a good reaction, a bad reaction? How's that gone? Uh, hi, Marty. Uh, so the, the re- article's gone pretty well, I think. I mean, I was dreading the uh, inevitable pile on on social media. I was dreading uh, all sorts of messages coming my way. So what I've got is a lot of people saying, Actually, I'm thinking this as well. I, I really want to sort of start opening up a bit. I really want to start going back to seeing people face to face. I mean, I, I've been surprised with the support and even some of the sort of sort of naysayers of general practice who you'd expect to sort of be my biggest critic have been uh, sending me messages and saying, do you know what? Actually, you raised some really good points. I, I think the headline uh, annoyed them more than anything, but there's nothing like a good headline to get people's attention. I did have a scan through Twitter and there didn't seem to be any pylons happening. I was very surprised. I thought surprised. maybe people were watching the football so didn't notice <laughs> it or something. Good day to bury bad news or something like that. I don't know. The thing that we've been talking about today wasn't necessarily uh, the the problems, but we're looking at what the solutions are. And uh, there was something that your mum had said to you was, let's trust patients to know whether or not they uh, need to see people face to face. But as we've been talking to Ellie about, problems have predated uh, the face to face situation. There's been a lot talked about the problems that predated worsening because of the pandemic, because of backlogs and, you know, burnout and and such like. You know, we're looking for the solution. What I mean, what's the answer? How do we solve the current GP crisis? Well, there's a long answer and there's a short answer. And the short answer is quite boring, well rehearsed. And it's we need more GPs and we need more investment and money into it. But that's not as easy as it sounds. Um, it takes a long time to get a GP. It takes, you know, six years of medical school and a, another four or five years of being after medical school to even be a sort of a, a relatively junior GP. So that's not a quick answer. And then the money thing, obviously, you know, we are post-pandemic and finances are, you know, in the country, we're not brilliant anyway. So once again, p- ploughing a load of money is not going to be 
readily available. So then we've got to look at the sort of more practical solutions. And I think they fall into you know, three groups. They fall into what the patient can do. They fall into what the government and NHS England can do and what the GPs themselves can do. Something that uh, we were talking to Ellie about was the idea of, of getting more allied health professionals involved in general practice and taking some of the weight off GPs themselves, uh, making it less likely that you would see a GP, but perhaps you would see the, a super pharmacist or a you know, nurse prescriber. Do you think that that might be a way to go? I mean, look, I'm I'm not being cynical, but there's two elements to this. So, look, there is definitely a role for allied health professionals in supporting the roles of general practitioners. Absolutely no doubt. But at the moment, they're being marketed as an alternative and they're simply not. And, And that's no disrespect to them. They've been trained differently from me. So at the moment, I've got allied health care professionals working within our primary care network, which is our group of practices. And at the moment, because they're not that experienced and because they're relatively new in post, they are relying very much on me to make the tricky decision. So in some cases, they're actually creating extra work for me. And sometimes, you know, I I sometimes think, oh, I've just been quicker doing that myself. Um, So I think there's a role, but they've got to be pretty senior, or you've got to have a very senior one of them to supervise people on site. The, The other aspect of that is the patient expectation. You know, a lot of patients do expect to see a doctor uh, and, you know, that's going to take years, decades to iron out of the population. You know, people almost feel shortchanged sometimes when they don't see a doctor for a problem that they perceive to be very, very important. And that goes beyond terrible symptoms, here's your diagnosis, here's your treatment. There's all of that sort of stuff on the edge that goes with it, the sort of the pastoral role of the GP that's going to take a long time for those allied healthcare professionals to master, if I'm being honest. Ellie, I'm interested to know what you think about what Mike's just said regarding allied health professionals. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, I have had patients say to me directly, no, I don't speak to pharmacists for health advice. And as I say, this is this um, culture that the GP is the catch-all, whether it is eczema or a housing problem or hay fever or potential cancer symptom or a prescription issue. Mm. GPs are incredibly trusted in this country and particularly a lot of people, certainly myself, and I think the same with Mike, um, you know, GPs who've worked in a practice for quite a while and we know our community and we know our patients, there is a huge amount of trust there. So it is hard even for a junior GP to come in um, and to sort of take over that role. But do you agree that there's a problem perhaps with the lack of training or that, you know, certain pharmacists aren't well equipped to do their job in that way? Well, it's just a different training. It's obviously a very different role. And again, within pharmacists, there obviously is is a huge range and a huge spectrum. Mm. So I would go to one of the pharmacists on my high street for healthcare advice, which I do very regularly, but I wouldn't go to the other one. Mm. So, you know, again, you've got the sort of lottery and you've got the different the different sort of people around. And if you've got the option of speaking to a GP who you know has worked in your area for 20 years and knows your mum and your husband and knows everything about you, you're more likely to speak to them than a brand new pharmacist that your primary care network um, has just employed. And something that's come up a few times in uh, these stories over over the months is e-consult. Is it a total failure? Ooh, I, I don't know if I should, I should answer. I, look, e-consult's just posh email. 
I mean, it really is. It, it, it's, it's nothing more. It, this, it's dressed up as being this online consultation tool where some robot voice is going to talk to you and tell you what's wrong with you. It's not. It's just a very expensive way of sending the practice an email in a way that the practice gets dumped with it at the worst possible time. So look, I, I don't understand the point. And what it means is that people can, at any day, time of night, send an email to their GP with unlimited free text. And taking the time to read that sometimes takes longer than then phoning up the patient and asking the whole story again, which tends to happen. Can I ask a question, Mike? Are GPs, this may may be slightly controversial, are GPs allowed to ignore the uh, e-consult on any occasion if they see that, you know, the the subject line is something that's completely ridiculous? Are they allowed to just ignore it? So they they can't ignore it, but you can send a, a brief message back saying this isn't appropriate. So, you know, I, I had one the other day and, you know, I'll keep it very vague, but someone said that they, um, they, that they went into uh, the cinema and they uh, start, felt anxious because the film was quite scary. And that was, that was the e-consult. Uh, and, you know, I Eve, was that you? <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, Eve, Eve, you've got to stop sending me these messages. Just phone me. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, I mean, that's, I mean, it's nuts. I mean, that someone is, you know, writing into their GP with that. And the fact Why? that you have to respond to that, I think, is, you know, I don't think anyone would not have sympathy for you in that situation. I mean, Ellie's big thing over the years has been to try and empower people to look after themselves better. Do you think that there's something in that, Mike? I Look, I, I do, but I don't think he consults the answer. I, I think that... Actually, um, one thing that's really useful is, um, you know, pointing people to online resources, trusted online resources. So I'm not saying for one minute you let people Google their symptoms, but actually there are some really good health checkers out there. There's some really good sites of advice. You know, patient.info is a regular go-to of mine. Um, you know, there's some uh, symptom checkers that are, you know, I won't plug any of them, but I, I tell people use these and just have a think about, you know, it'll give you an idea of what, to, of what you should be looking at. I think the worst thing is when you Google um, you know your symptoms, and then obviously the most horrific symptoms. And you, you sort of people come in and they say, "I think I've got um, Mon- Mongolian ringworm disease." And you say, "Have you been to Mongolia recently?" No. Oh, he's, he's reading <laughs> my <laughs> medical <laughs> records again. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Eve. I, 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 I promised I wouldn't, but uh, you know, yours is so interesting. Uh, it's, it's, it's the hypochondria. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Look, um, from both of you, I would like just one brilliant idea that we could tell Boris Johnson he has to enact by the end of the week in order to save GP practices. What's that one brilliant idea? Ellie, what would you say? Bring back the minor ailment schemes so people can go to the pharmacist for a whole host of different minor ailments without having to pay for their prescriptions and advertise it like mad so people go there as a first port of call. So what? So explain, is this something that existed before? It was something that existed before and people could see their pharmacist in the same way that they see a GP. So the prescri- it, was, it was done on prescription rather than having to buy something. And things like athlete's foot, ringworm, nits, hay fever coughs and colds so you're taking away um, the idea of the pharmacist being a shopkeeper and any financial transaction because it becomes a prescription and I think Mm. that's a good way to empower pharmacists Mm. but I don't think many people ever knew about it yeah great idea great idea Mike mine's very simple Um, so the government gave a load of money to um, GP practices or, or primary care networks 
to get additional staff, but they've been really prescriptive about which staff we can get. So interestingly, the only two staff that are missing from the list of staff that we can get are doctors and nurses, which are pretty short in general practice at the moment. So I would want them to say, look, we can still spend that workforce budget, but let us please buy doctors and nurses with it, not just these additional roles. I think that would be a really good help. Mm. Mm. Can I just ask, are there enough doctors and nurses to go around that are training to be doctors and nurses, doctors specifically? Um, I didn't say GPs. So, oh, yeah. you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I wouldn't mind buying a bit of a, health, uh, of a care of the elderly consultant, for instance. I wouldn't mind buying a little bit of a, a rheumatologist or a little bit of a cardiologist. You know, that would be, I think that would be quite transformational. If I could buy one morning of a cardiologist amongst my group of practices, we could perhaps do something about the big waiting list to see a cardiologist or the big waiting list to see a yeah. consultant. So you'd have a specialist clinic at the GP surgery? Well, well as for the group of GP surgeries. So, you know, these primary care mm. networks, which is this group of GP surgeries, why not let that workforce budget be uh, opened up to, actually, I'd like to buy a cardiologist once a week. And therefore, you know, you could have t- 10 patients seen every week in your group, which could massively reduce the waiting list. Uh, make people uh, not sort of deteriorate whilst they're waiting to see a consultant. And actually, patients might like being seen in their own practice by a cardiologist. So, I, I, you know, it seems like an obvious idea to me. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. Let's hope that um, somebody powerful is listening. Yeah, yeah, Boris, if you are listening to this podcast, um, I'd really like you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, thanks so much to both of you for talking to us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. It's been great. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Hi, sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Right, I'm afraid, Eve, that is all we've got time for. Oh, but it was such an interesting conversation. I wanted it to go on all night. I know. Aren't we lucky to work with such uh, interesting doctors? So fabulous and such insightful ideas. You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at mailplus. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.